good to see you. Thank you for uh, having me here in, uh, in Liberty. Once again, it is always good to be here in this fantastic church and to be in this fantastic city. Uh, you're, you're privileged to live here in such a spectacular place. Um, last time I came to this very building, um, I've been with Liberty since then. I came uh, in the summer to the camp that you guys hosted, uh, which many of you would have attended back in May, I think it was. <clears throat> but the last time I was here on a Sunday, um, I think, was, was pretty much this time last year. And um, I, I had the privilege of preaching on the morning, and then uh, I was due to fly home that evening, but ended up flying home on Wednesday uh, because the snow came. And, and uh, because we live in, uh, you know, in places that don't deal with that much snow, the airports couldn't cope, and I couldn't get a flight home for three extra days, so I had an extra kind of holiday in, in, in Lena Maria's house. Um, which, was, which was excellent. They were very good hosts, and they only charged me a little bit, so it was okay. Uh, it, was, it was a fairly cheap bed and breakfast. No, it was free. But, um, but it, was, it was brilliant to, to, to get more time and have an, have an excuse to stay. I don't think that's going to happen today. It looks like not snow, so I should be able to get home to my family. Uh, but I'm so glad to be here anyway. And um, if, if you're new here, um, uh, my name is Joel, as, as Matt said, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's our habit in, in, in this church and churches that we work together with to, to every week open the Bible together and to see what it has to say and to apply it to our lives. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, if you have your Bible with you, perhaps you turn with me to uh, the first book of Samuel uh, in the Old Testament. Um, and I'm going to be reading to you from chapter 23 in just a moment, uh, verses 15 to 18. Uh, 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 to 18. Um, and then we'll pray, and then we'll uh, get into it. Um, but before I do that, the, the subject, very simply, um, that I want to raise with you is, is in, encouraging one another. How to encourage. How to encourage one another. Very literally, the word encourage could, could mean put, put heart into people, put heart in, or even you could say put strength in, uh, to, to impart strength to another person. And I guess all of us would appreciate the experience of being in a community which is encouraging, being in a family which is encouraging, maybe being in a friendship, which is encouraging, maybe being in a marriage, which is encouraging, maybe being in a neighborhood, a workplace that is encouraging. Everybody uh, would appreciate that. Everybody in, enjoys being encouraged generally. And uh, that is definitely true of churches as well. But it's true, like I say, of everybody and every experience. So this is very relevant to you, uh, whether you're a believer in Jesus or you're brand new here and you're just full of questions and you're not really sure about the Christian message at all, I believe this is very, very relevant to you. But it's also, like I say, it is definitely relevant to churches. And here at Liberty, we, we are eager, we're, we are longing to help see a community develop that flourishes in this city, that, that blesses people, that grows that helps to change lives. 
and set lives up for the future uh, that helps to build uh, individuals and families uh, into becoming more like the image of God and to being a, a genuine source of light and life and joy and hope uh, in this city. That will happen more if this is an encouraging community. It will happen less if it's a discouraging community. And so we want to take this seriously. How do we become increasingly encouraging? To do that, I want to take the example of Jonathan, not, not the example of me, because I'm not the world's best at encouraging. Uh, this is something that I've got a lot to learn about, but I would learn a great deal. I have learned a great deal from this man's example in the book of Samuel. So the, the background to this story is that uh, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament had been gathered to the land that God had given them and God had set up a, uh, a kingdom, a throne, a crown, uh, a government for them. And the first king, Saul, was on the throne, the very first king of Israel. But God had eventually rejected Saul uh, because of Saul basically rejecting God and God had given Saul what he wanted and it meant that he had to replace him with the, the right king, the king that God had more wholeheartedly chosen, the, the King David. But we're joining the story before David is the rightful king. He, well, he's, he's not recognized yet at least as the king. And rather like you'd see in a lot of stories from the past and great epic fictional stories of leaders, that the leader of the future is, is quite often somebody who is an outlaw in the present. In fact, even, even today, some of the most famous leaders of our time or leaders of recent times have spent a lot of their early years in prison. Uh, Nelson Mandela would be perhaps the most famous example, someone who became a uh, greatly admired global leader. He spent many years as an outlaw. And David's story is quite similar. The existing king, Saul, has violently opposed David at this point of the story for many years because he's threatened by him, he's jealous of him, he does not want David becoming king. And so David is living as an outlaw, literally at risk of his life. He is, he is having to live day by day with the possibility that Saul's troops could hunt him down successfully and take him away to his death. Every day he's lived with this for many years. And if you were to live in that kind of way as, as a fugitive, uh, being hunted, it would eventually get exhausting and wearying and discouraging, extremely discouraging. And so we're, we're meeting a character whose life has become dark and, and almost despairing. And so it's striking at this point that a, a, a word of encouragement, a moment of encouragement changes his course. The interesting thing as well is that the source of the encouragement, Jonathan, is no less than the son of the existing king, the one who is after David to kill him. So while Saul is after David trying to hunt him down to kill him, Jonathan is trying to hunt him down to encourage him. 
So we, we're meeting here a, a dramatic example of the, the power of encouragement, the necessity, the clinical importance of it, and the way in which the, the, you know, it's done, the nature of it, uh, because we're going to see it being done so clearly. And it's, it's very, only a few verses, but let's read it together in uh, verse 15 of 1 Samuel 23. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. And I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh and Jonathan went home. Let's just quickly pray together now. Father, we thank you for this book, your kind gift to us, given that we might have revelation concerning yourself uh, and concerning your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that now you'd send your Holy Spirit so that we who would be so lost without your revelation would have our eyes opened and our, our minds enlightened and our, our hearts warmed up and changed and uh, made to become more confident and trusting in you and more enabled to live the kind of encouraging life that you call us to. We pray that for every single one. I pray that every single person here today would hear something of the voice of God and would be drawn closer as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, a long time ago in my church, I guess probably now about 20 years ago, something like that, um, a, a friend of mine um, was, was, was in my church at the time, and he was, he was feeling extremely alienated, very distant from the whole thing. He didn't feel at home. He didn't feel that this church was for him, and he didn't feel that God was for him. He, he, began, he was beginning to lose his confidence, it felt, in, in the, the God that he had trusted. And uh, he, he, he was feeling also like no one in the church particularly knew him um, or, or wanted to, and he was just drifting. He, he probably could have drifted out of church um, pretty easily. And it was a, a one particular point where he was, he was on a Sunday meeting and he was just about to leave. He, he left a little bit early, um, hoping that no one would kind of talk to him because he, was just, he just didn't want to have that from anybody. Uh, so he sort of left a little early just to get some space away from the people. But while he was hitting the pavement outside the building, another guy who's in the church, who's also a friend of mine, both of them have you know, been in the church for, for years, he, he saw him, and though he didn't know him particularly well, he went over to him and he said, just, can I just talk to you? And the guy turned around and said, I just want you to know that I, I, I believe that you have a great future with God, and I believe that you need to be part of this church because what you have to contribute to this church is really important. And you, you are a blessing, and God wanted you to know that you're, you're an important blessing in this church. And, and you know, it, it's, it's honestly true to say that that guy that he spoke to 
now basically helps lead the church that I lead. He, in fact, he probably carries more responsibility for uh, looking after the church and how it's run than anyone else beside me. And, and he was you know, this close to drifting away, but one word of encouragement was enough to change the course of his future. And I give you that story to, to show you the power of this important tool of encouragement and to kind of sharpen your imagination. For some of us, we don't encourage because we, we, we think it's pointless. We don't see the use of it. But I honestly think that's because we have a very dull imagination. We, we simply don't imagine what God could do through us. And so we, we, we need to kind of re recover the sense of this potent weapons, power and influence. And some of us, we don't need reminding because, well, maybe we do, but we are less likely to forget because we have the gift of encouragement. The Bible talks about that. Some of you, you're wired like this. You are, you are filled with the gift of encouragement and you wouldn't know how to stop encouraging people. And if that's you, then thank you for being in this church. We need people like that terribly. And the gift of encouragement is a gift, a great gift. It is a much better gift, for example, than the gift of discouragement, which many people in my church have. It's a, it's, it's, that's also a very powerful gift in the church, which I've seen at work through many people. They, they kind of seem to even find one another. People with the gift of discouragement, they kind of find each other. I think they have regular meetings, they have, you know, whether they, they kind of post it on Facebook and they just they find they have some kind of scheme whereby they think, right, who should we work hard to discourage this week? They don't usually call it the gift of discouragement, they usually call it the gift of discernment. <laughs> they, they usually think that they're really serving the church by, by attacking people. And, Imagining that the, the, the Bible calls them to discourage, when the Bible doesn't tend to do that. If you read the Bible, you'll notice that there aren't really many commands in Scripture for us to discourage one another. Maybe we think, oh, I, I, need to, I need to just humble this person. The Bible doesn't even tell us to do that. Humble one another. I've never found that verse. God is capable of humbling other, other Christians in your church. He's way better at it than you are. So if you think you've got the gift of humbling people, or the gift of discernment, discouragement, you need to repent, you need to see it properly, you need to start thinking properly about this because the, the gift that God has constantly urged us to flourish in as churches is the gift of encouragement. And the, the, the scripture is replete with, with all of these do this for one another, do this for one another, do this for one another. There's so much one anothering, and plenty of it is to do with encouraging, uh, admonishing, exhorting, which we'll get to, as, as I want to try and cover a few categories within this broad category of encouragement uh, in, this, in this message. So we, we need to flourish in this gift. But some of you will say, well, it's not my gift. I'm not, I'm not gifted at encouraging. It's not something I'm particularly strong in. I don't desire to do it very much. I find it a little bit lame when people constantly are positive and just gushing over with, with words of encouragement and nice little texts and notes and, and things that just don't mean anything to me and I don't really trade in that kind of stuff. And Listen, you may not see yourself as gifted with encouragement, but you're still called to it. And if... if, if 
if the gift meant that the rest of us didn't have to do it, then the rest of us wouldn't have to give, the rest of us wouldn't need to evangelize, the rest of us wouldn't need to serve in the church. There are gifts of those things, but that, that doesn't let the rest of us off from ever doing it. And so to keep this before each one of us as a, as a challenge is healthy too. So if you're not gifted with the gift of encouragement, I'm not sure that I am, I think I'm like you, I still want to urge you nevertheless to press on with it and to see how much you can grow in this area anyway because it's healthy for liberty as a church. It will make the church so much stronger. It will do you good. It will do the city good as we learn to be the kind of encouraging community that the New Testament calls us to. So let me do this. Okay, I'm going to spend some time now looking at categories of encouragement that I can see in this story that, that uh, we have of Jonathan and David. Just really quickly, I'm going to try and go through four of them uh, before I finish. Okay, so the first of, of them is the gift of what I would call uh, uh, consoling. Consoling. This is, this is a, a, a kind of a category within encouragement. The first is consoling, the second will be affirming, the third will be exhorting, and the fourth will be admonishing. Okay, but let's start with consoling. What I mean by this is simply being there. That's, that's all sometimes that one needs to do. Jonathan goes to David. He just gets to him and he hangs out with him. His physical presence with him is a mighty encouragement to David. This, this is sometimes the most striking thing you will do for somebody, even without your words. In fact, sometimes our words are the things that spoil it. Just sometimes, occasionally. We, we might find that we do our best work by showing up at, at the hospital, uh, at the graveside. There are times when all, all you can do is just show up. When someone's just had the phone call, when someone's just had the bad news, and you just, you just sit with them. And you, you think, I don't know what to say. And you say a few things and you're not really sure if it landed and it's not much use. And, but you, you might find that it, it didn't matter that much what you said. You were just blessing them by being there. Just your presence was a genuine comfort. And that's exactly the story here. Jonathan just gets to David completely unexpectedly. He has to go behind enemy lines. This is an enormous risk to himself. He's a prince. He's got no business in the wilderness trying to find a fugitive in loads of caves. He could sit in his palace and be fed and, and waited on by palace staff. But he says, no, I will go and find my friend at cost, at sacrifice, to the point of pain and great risk. If he's caught doing it, he would be in terrible danger. Doesn't matter, I will get to him. That's remarkable. To travel to be with someone, and some of you over the Christmas period, you'll be doing some of this, traveling to be with people that you love. We make a priority of it, don't we? We say, okay, this is family. I'm gonna be with this person. I'm gonna get time sitting down with this group. These, these people are the ones that I'm tight with, and, I, and it's right for me to be with them, not just to, to send a message. 
uh, at times in our lives. We know that's important. Well, this is such a time. And there will be times where you just need to be with someone and console them and not necessarily even speak. Sometimes the way we speak is, is actually us trying to solve a problem or fix them. Like Job's friends, maybe you remember in the book of Job, he has some comforters who aren't very comforting. And they, they do their best work in the first week. It says they just sat with him and wept when he suffered. They just sat and cried with him. And that was good. That was when they were serving him well. But then they start trying to solve him, and fix him. And they, they become miserable comforters. So we do our best work sometimes just by being there. The second thing is affirming. Okay, so we start with consoling. The second is affirming. And when I talk about affirming, I mean declaring truth to a person, stating the truth that will steady them, that will comfort them, that will give them, give them a, a rock to stand on, a place of conviction, a place of security, the truth. Now, bear in mind, this needs some qualification because Frankly, for, for humanity in general, for people generally, the real truth is not what we want. The real truth is not comforting. We don't want to be told the truth, not, not at first. Because as, as human beings, we've turned away from the one who is the truth. We don't like the truth. Jesus himself said the world loves the darkness and hates the light because its deeds are evil. The world does not like truth. And there's a good reason for that. The truth is unwelcome. If, you, if you're avoiding and running away from God, the truth isn't pleasant to hear because the path away from God leads to worse and worse and worse and worse and worse things. That's that's the truth, at least as Jesus told it. And I'm speaking for him right now. If we, if we avoid God, then we're definitely going to avoid truth. And so when truth comes to us, we will, we will not be all that comforted by it. Not at first. And you might say, well, that's, that's you preaching your Bible. I don't believe that truth. So, so why, why do I have to listen? But what truth do you believe then? Because if you say, oh, there, there isn't, this Christianity thing isn't true, I'm not even sure if God is there, then the truth is just as much of an enemy to you. Be honest. The truth is the very thing we, we, we would rather keep away from. If God isn't there, I definitely don't want to concentrate on the truth for too long. Because the truth is that the world is completely meaningless. And my life is meaningless. In fact, if God isn't there, then neither am I, really. Because what, what am I? If, if God's not there, I am nothing but sheer accidental forces of physics, driving chemicals, driving biological cells, totally without any spiritual meaning. It's all just material accidents. It's just particles bumping up against each other. And what I feel is a genuine life of conscious enjoyment and experience and relationships and meaning is complete deception. 
it doesn't really mean anything. That's why a great thinker, Stephen, Stephen Pinker, who, who works in all kinds of uh, um, uh, analysis of science and sociology and stuff, he says that he, he does all kinds of work in his, in his studies and laboratories which are very... Uh, 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 in the way he sees the world is that the world ultimately hasn't got any ultimate meaning, any kind of ultimate spiritual meaning, but when he goes home to his family, to his children, he has to change his mind on the journey home and start to rehearse again a different way of seeing the world. This is why people like you know, David Hume, the, the, the Scottish philosopher of, of the Enlightenment, who really preached a message of materialism, that the world is nothing but blind forces. That was the kind of worldview he kind of ended up saying, this is the most reasonable worldview. He used to spend hours and hours playing backgammon with his friends and said, the reason I do this is to keep my mind away from the real implications of what I believe. And this is what the, the, the Christian philosopher and mathematician Pascal said. He said, why do kings and princes spend money on court jesters? Why is it the people in the world who are most empowered, most wealthy, you'd expect them to be most happy, they actually spend money on having entertainment 24-7? It's the same question today. Why is it that some of the most well-paid people are the entertainers? The most, the most propped up and empowered industries are the, the massive uh, TV and media outlets and, and, and Netflix. And these are the things that we will not like. These are the things that we will keep. Even if there's Armageddon, we will still have Spotify. <laughs> we will keep iTunes. We will definitely have these things. We can't do without the entertainment. We've got to keep that going. Because surely, like Pascal said, we would rather be distracted than face the reality. We would rather be entertained than face the truth of the meaninglessness of life. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because I want you to understand that I, I can only encourage you with the truth if the truth is good. If the truth is bad, it's no encouragement to you. It's, it's, you know, I remember, you know, some of you, you've heard some of your colleagues, I remember some of you, we, this is the atmosphere in our workplace. I remember when I was uh, in my first job after leaving university and I was going through a difficult, stressful time and one of my colleagues just said to me, everything will be all right in the end, don't worry. And it was a nice thing, they were being nice, I don't blame them, they were being very sweet. But when they walked away I thought, that, that mean, means nothing. I don't have any reason to believe you. Nothing, there's nothing there. It was nice, but meaningless. And, and the truth is, is either good truth or bad truth. If it's bad truth, we, I can't encourage you with it. There's no courage to be found. There's no joy to be found. There's no meaning. There's nothing at all. But if the truth is good, oh man, then God give it to me. Let me stand it. Let me, let me find it as, as the, the basis of hope. Let me build my life on it. Let me build my house on the rock of truth, like Jesus said, not on the sand. And let me find that it strengthens and supports me and gives me hope, gives me a sense of a future and a destiny. If the truth is good, that is, that is very good. And, and Jonathan, the way he talks to David, this is, this is what we see, he is full of truth. The way he talks to David is, is he gives him reasons 
for hope, reasons for confidence. He says, do not fear for, he doesn't just say, don't be afraid, David. Don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid for, because the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. How did Jonathan know this, let alone his father, who was trying to kill David? But Jonathan knows this because he's, he's got insight into God's plan for history. He knows that there is a God who is ruling over things. He knows there's something about David's family tree. There's something about David. The destiny on David is massive. Jonathan knows it in his gut. He's got spiritual revelation. He knows that there's going to be somebody from David's future. Maybe he doesn't know all the details, but he knows there's something about David that belongs on the throne because there's going to be a descendant of David who will rule over all things forever and ever. Jonathan get something about him. He knows that history is not meaningless. It's not an accident. It's not just random particles. There's a God with a plan. There's a God with a son. There's a God who wants his son to be king of kings forever and ever and ever. Jonathan gets it. He says, David, whatever happens, that's happening. And because that's happening, have hope. Be encouraged. However dark it gets, God's plan is bright light. However, however low it gets, God's plan is ascension to the highest of the heights. If you can't see that, there's no encouragement. But Jonathan is, is standing in truth and he invites David to do the same. We need to be good at reminding each other the truth as it is in Jesus. Reminding each other what's true about God, what's true about Jesus. Stand in the good of it. Come back to what's true. Come back to the security of it. Third thing, and this changes the, the tack a little bit, is exhortation. Let's just quickly touch this. Exhortation, I'm, I'm going to uh, define it for, for the sake of this message. As when, when you're really, it's, it's calling people to be true to how God has called them, what God has made them to be. So, so whereas the one before was about reminding each other of the truth, and the one before that was just being present with people, this one is more like seeing what God has put into an individual and drawing it out of them, calling them to, be, you know, to, to, to rise to it, calling them to be ambitious in that sense. It's, it's what David does, so it's what Jonathan does when he, he, he tells him these things, but he does say, do not fear, and he reminds him of his particular destiny. Sometimes you will have more confidence in another person's destiny and another person's God-given plan for their life than they will. Sometimes you'll see things about somebody that they won't see themselves, maybe for a long time. Maybe you'll just see it and you'll know, no, no, this, this, you have a, a gift in this area, or you are called to do this, or God put you on the planet to do this. I know this about you. Sometimes you just, you, you feel it in your gut. Sometimes you see it, you see the way they do things, and you realize, no, that's special. <laughs> that, the thing that, you're, that you do is a gift. Not everybody can do that. That's a gift. And the other person doesn't see it. 
Or if they do see it, they don't, they don't live as if they've seen it. They, they kind of take their gifts and they bury them. They bury them as if, as if they're not that special. And an exhorter will say, don't you bury the things that God has given you. An exhorter will call stuff out of people. It will say, look, I've seen this in you. You've got this gift. You, you mustn't bury it. You need to stand up in the gift that God's given you. And it, it's a wonderful thing when people do this. It's such a, it's such a privilege to, to witness this happen from time to time. I've, I've worked with a few people in my church over the years who clearly have this part, this gift of encouragement. They, they, they know how to spot kind, certain kinds of qualities in people, God-given qualities. And they call them to work them out wholeheartedly. And it's brilliant. There's it's a man in the Bible called Joseph who was so good at this that they changed his name. They changed his name to Son of Encouragement. Son of Encouragement. Bar Abbas. Son, the Son of Encouragement. He, he, was a, he was such an encourager that he, he, constantly, he, he constantly got alongside people and lifted them, Barabbas. Even people that you'd think, that's, that's not <laughs> the kind of person that you should be encouraging, Barabbas. Like he, he found this guy called Saul, who you, most of you know the story, was famous at the time really for hunting Christians down and throwing them in prison and having them put to death. And they were looking for leaders for a church in Antioch. They're looking for nice pastors. And Barabbas says, I got just the guy. I'm going to go find him. He's called Saul. And I'm sure they were thinking, Saul of Saul who? Uh, Saul of Tarsus. No, not Saul of Tarsus. We know him. He's the guy that you know, he killed our relatives. He killed our, our last pastor, maybe. Barabbas is like, yeah, but he's a good guy, really. <laughs> you know, he's such a good guy. He's got a good heart. He didn't mean those things. Anyway, he, 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 would, he would have, uh, I'm sure, had many interesting conversations. But no, he was, he was good at pulling, pulling in at people and showing the, the, the qualities that weren't immediately obvious and the church needs to be a place where we can we can help encourage people who at first it might not seem obvious what God's plan is for their life and being encouraging might mean that we nurture and encourage people who take a long time to get kind of sort of accepted and recognized by the whole church or the whole community so it's a it's a challenging gift there but it's 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 part and parcel of encouraging, and it's, it's also to do with exhorting. Exhorting will sometimes mean saying to people, no, you're better than that. <laughs> it will sometimes mean saying to people, look, the, the gift that God has given you is better than the way you're living right now. I remember just in the, in the workplace when I was, before I became a pastor, I had one colleague who, who wasn't a Christian, but he was, he was good at this particular thing. When I, when I wasn't passionate about my work, when my adrenaline kind of died down, when I was getting dull and lazy on, on one or two occasions, he, he really brought this to my attention. But he made me want to do better. He inspired me by saying, you are much better than that. 
You are much better than that. And maybe you think, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm being lazy with the gifts and the talents that God's given me for this role. There's a, there's a challenging side to exhortation as well. Let me touch finally on admonishing, admonishing. And here is the very kind of strong end of encouragement, if you like. Jonathan is, is tough with David as well as being deeply comforting. Do not fear. Do not fear. He brings a strong challenge to him. And admonition will, will sometimes confront. Okay, sometimes the way we encourage people is actually by bringing a strong word. Now, for some people, this is the part of the sermon where they've woken up saying, I'm in for this bit. I love this bit. And if that's you, you can't play. Because if you don't like parts one, two, and three, you don't get to do four, okay? So I'm not interested in people that just love confronting people. I go, when's the next person I can confront? That's not really that helpful, okay? In fact, the people who are going to be most useful at confronting people are the ones who probably don't look forward to it very much. But they do it because they love the person. So they don't do it because they really get a kick out of speaking harshly. But they, they know that it's sometimes necessary because you love someone too much to let them stay in trouble. So admonition is, is a little strong sometimes. And, and it can feel a little discomforting for the person on the end of it. And we tend to think, well, if I'm not being comforted, if, if someone's not speaking nicely to me, then I, I'm not really interested in, in, in that friendship. I'm not really interested in that church. And I, I expect to be treated pleasantly. I expect to be constantly you know, rubbed up the right way and affirmed in terms of nice, nice things being said to me. But it, it, honestly, it won't build strength into you if that's all you ever hear. One of the old Puritan preachers used to say, hard words, soft hearts. Soft words, hard hearts. Churches are like that. If you only ever hear soft words in a church, your heart will gradually get hard. But if you sometimes hear some hard words, your, your heart will stay a little softer. I think that's what he's doing here, and I think it's really important. And I can think of times in my life, maybe you can as well, where someone has brought a challenge to you. I remember one particular phone call I had with someone once where I phoned him up to say how I was doing in a certain area. And I, 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 I said it in a way that I thought he would sympathize with me and be all pleasant with me. I said, I'm not doing very well at this. But what I was saying was really me hiding the fact that I was being selfish and sinful. But I was kind of giving it my best in the kind of how, yeah, you should really feel sorry for me in this situation. And this guy, who was a very gentle, kind brother, he wasn't a hard man, he was a very gracious man indeed, he turned on me on the phone. He really, really did. He laid into me. He said, I'll tell you what's going on. You're, being, you're feeling sorry for yourself. You've got it completely wrong. You're, in this situation, you, you are being your own worst enemy. You are creating problems for yourself and for your marriage. You are wrong in this situation. And it's funny, I mean, months, years later, I said to him, do you remember that phone call? Because it changed my life. No, no exaggeration, it was a turning point for me. And I said to him, do you remember that phone call? He was like, no. <laughs> I guess the Holy Spirit just uses us sometimes and we don't even realize it's, it's happening. 
But it is, sometimes it's a word that you know, you, it's just a tough word that, you, that will actually cut someone out of their patterns of just, just kind of being stuck in behaviors and attitudes that are not healthy and, and, and going to lead them and other people into trouble. So admonishment will kind of be a bit awkward. It might break things up a bit, a little. It might threaten relationships even slightly, but that's better than being stuck. So, so encouragement comes with all kinds of shapes and sizes. It's, it's gentle. It's, it's just presence with people. It's affirming them in the truth. It's calling them to their destiny and challenging them away from danger. It can be forceful. I, I, I love the way it says here, Jonathan went to strengthen David's hand in God. He strengthened his hand. And, and there's, a, there's one commentator about this chapter who says, it's a little bit like Jonathan's grabbing David's hand and taking it out of the hand of the enemy and putting it back into God's hand. And that's a powerful image, isn't it? Because we can do that. You could do that. You could be walking through life just holding hands, not realizing who's leading you. You're walking hand in hand with someone who's leading you into Desperate things, terrible things, wrong things. You don't even know. You're just like a child. Imagine it. Imagine a child being just led away by the wrong person in a crowded street. They just lost their parent and just reached out for a hand and someone else took their hand. And they're just, just walking blithely along, not even noticing. This is the wrong person. And some of you, maybe even today, you know you've been going through life for like years like that. You just, you've been holding the wrong hand. You've not realized, perhaps until now, that's the reason for so much going on. That's the reason for so much discouragement, so much shame, so much guilt, so many bad decisions, because I'm just walking hand in hand with the wrong person. And some of you Christians, you're deeply discouraged. And what we can do for each other, friends, is is do like Jonathan and, and find your brother or your sister, take their hand, stick it back in the Lord's hand. Bring it back. Oh, let me rescue. Let me help you to get you back from danger. That's what encouragement does. My 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 mother has uh, three sisters, and when they were very young, uh, they were in a supermarket with parents, and a kidnapper grabbed the hand of one of my mother's sisters, and the other sister that was there was kind of feisty. She ran over to this guy and she bit his hand until it drew blood. And that's, that's kind of Jonathan right here. See, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not having this. I'm going to risk, I'm going to fight this thing for you. I hate this discouragement in your life. I hate this, this kidnapping force that's dragging you away from truth, dragging you away from, from the comfort, the light, and the joy of Jesus. And if necessary, I will bite <laughs> to get you free. Would you do that for your brother or sister? Would you find them and think about them? Let me challenge you before I finish. Who are the people you could do that for this week? Don't just hear this message. Please don't do that. Don't just say, oh, I agree with that sermon. Wrong conclusion. Who are two or three people this week in liberty? And if you're not in this church, then in your church. Or if, you don't, if you're not a Christian people in your workplace. Think about it. Think about this message for yourself anyway. Who are some people 
and write their names down. Put them in your phone. Do something. And pray about it. Think about it. What could you do this week for them? How could you fight for them? How could you encourage them in a decisive way? And some of you might say, and this is my very last thing, I, I would love to do that, but no one encourages me here. I haven't been encouraged in this church for ages, so why should I encourage anybody else? And I want to say to you, you have a choice, don't you? We all have choices at times. We either choose self-pity, I know that's tough to hear, but that's what it is. Or we do what Jonathan did. We think, okay, God, I will give myself because you've given yourself for me. Because the real Jonathan is not Jonathan, the son of King Saul, but Jesus, the son of the father, who crossed enemy lines, put himself not just at risk, but put himself on the cross, came to us in our dark place, came from the palace of heaven for us to bring us the word of truth to set us free from the darkness. This is what Jesus does for us. And if you've met Jesus, if you, if you stand in the strength of Jesus and who he is, you'll be able to reach out to others and you'll be free from this, the power of self-pity. Let's just pray and then I'll hand back to Matt. Father, we thank you for this, this story. Thank you for what it has to teach us. We pray you'd help us to stand in the good of it as a community. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>